Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Karen Levy. Karen is an assistant professor in the Department of Information Science at Cornell University. Karen, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks. Nice to join you. So, Karen, you have a background in both law and sociology, uh, and you're currently teaching in an information science uh, department. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, so I started out, I um, I went to law school and then I worked in a federal court for a couple of years after that. And then kind of in the course of that, I got interested in sort of the social causes of the legal problems that came through the court on a fairly regular basis. So I went and got a PhD in sociology. And uh, when I was in graduate school, I got really interested in technology as kind of a, a route towards social control, right? Like a different way um, that people's, people's life chances are impacted besides the law. Um, so I started to look more at kind of intersections between the law and technology and how people's um, decisions are made um, and their social interactions are structured as a result of the technologies around them. So that landed me in an information science department. And yeah, that's where I am now. A lot of your focus now is on the social aspects of surveillance and monitoring. Maybe tell us a little bit about kind of your the, the types of research that you do around that area. Sure. So, yeah, I'm really interested in surveillance. So when I my kind of framework for thinking about technology is that I'm really interested in the way we use technologies to enforce rules. And sometimes those rules are like state or federal laws, and sometimes they are organizational rules, or even kind of like expectations and norms of behavior within intimate relationships like families or friendships. Um, but I'm really interested in how we use technology to sort of enforce all of those expectations. And one of the ways that we often do that is through surveillance, right, is through creating a record of the things that people do um, as a kind of means by which to tell whether or not they're following the rules or not. Um, and so I look at that in a variety of different contexts, but the kind of the two big contexts where I've spent the most time um, and energy in my research are workplaces. So I've done a fair amount of work um, on surveillance in the workplace and uh, intimate context. So I do a lot of work on families and sexual relationships, intimate relationships, trying to understand um, the role that technology plays in how people relate to one another there. Hmm. You know, I think one of the things that I'm realizing as we're starting to talk about this topic is that I find it scary, like the thought of jumping into this conversation, because while I tend to be very optimistic about technology, particularly uh, AI, the whole surveillance thing kind of freaks me out sometimes. Um, <laughs> you're laughing. Are you familiar with that kind of uh, take on it? <laughs> well, I mean, I like I like the idea that within the first five minutes of us starting to talk, you get scared. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about the research. But yeah, I mean, so there is kind of certainly like you could characterize my interest in technology as being sort of about the dark side, right? Like about kind of maybe the nefarious ways people use technology or the unintended consequences that the use of these technologies um, might have on on particularly vulnerable vulnerable groups of people. Um, I'm definitely interested interested in that, but I don't kind of approach it as like a technology naysayer. Um, like I think we ought to implement, I think, you know, I'm like a, I don't think we ought to be Luddites, right? Like I think there's a lot of positive mm -hmm. roles that, that technologies can play in our lives, but I think doing that in a way that's attentive to 
you know, ethical and privacy concerns, and particularly the the role that technologies can have on marginalized groups that are marginalized in all different sorts of ways, right, economically or socially. Um, like, it doesn't make any sense to deploy things without without paying attention to that. Right, right. So we've got this relationship that's developing between artificial intelligence and uh, data collection, where we're in AI has really been enabled by uh, an array of data collection technologies and really the increased digitization both in our lives and our work. Uh, and it's also hungry for data, and so it drives more uh, data collection. What are, you know, when you think about um, the just the increase in uh, the amount of data that's being collected about us, like how do you, do you have like a taxonomy or a framework for thinking about the different uh, impacts that this has? So my sense is that maybe, you know, to taxonomize different sorts of data, like I, I don't do that in a formal way, but I do think um, like one of the one of the promises and perils of, you know, the scale and granularity of the data collection that we do now is how readily repurposed or combined different data sources are, right? Like that's part of the beauty um, of, of what we can do with data now, but it also creates risks for people that are perhaps unforeseeable, right? And and. So because of that, I think, you know, proceeding with caution makes a lot of sense um, and, you know, having kind of a good feel for how, you know, again, particularly marginalized communities might be differentially impacted by data collection. So like an example that I like to use in my teaching um, is about like census population data, right, which feels like kind of not that interesting, maybe, right, like censuses are just they seem like pretty, you know, kind of general high level data collection. But there are all these examples um, in the past of how that data gets, you know, reused perhaps years later for all kinds of different purposes, including like human rights abuses, right? This is something that my colleague Alvaro Bedoya at Georgetown has written a lot about. Um, so things like that, right? Like things like sort of the lives that data can have later on, right? Or in the context of like, I've done a bunch of work with some other folks here at Cornell about intimate partner violence, right? Like thinking about how the data you generate on your phone or on your computer, you know, might be very interesting to a partner, to an abusive partner, right? Or may actually like reveal quite a bit more about your whereabouts than you might anticipate or know. You know, those are really important considerations for people and the way people experience, you know, technology and privacy and security. Um, and so I think paying attention to those kind of like really like my, almost mundane, like day-to-day exchanges we have um, that involve our data, you know, it's not all about our relationship with kind of like the big tech companies, right? It's also about our relationships with one another and how those get mediated through the data trails that we generate. As we're thinking about this, do you, how do you structure that for, does your research aim to like structure for that for us? Like how we should be thinking about this or uh, are you more kind of exploring different, uh, different stories and how folks are impacted? Yeah, I mean, I would say a lot. So certainly there are some design implications, right? So I think paying attention to examples of things that have happened in the past can help us to think more critically about how we design systems for the future. Um, But a lot of it, I think, is actually what you said is like kind of telling these stories, right, of how people, um, how people's lives end up changing or end up, you know, impacted in these different ways, based on their interactions with data intensive systems. Um, and, and I think honestly, a lot of the time, like we tend to kind of use the most readily available tool. So one kind of theme that runs through a lot of my research is how 
you know, oftentimes we might use a data driven system um, to address a problem that might actually be better addressed using some other tool, right? So like, for example, um, I've done a bunch of work about truck drivers and, and trying to understand uh, how truck drivers are affected by the technologies that are used to track them. And the reason why we use those technologies is because truck drivers are really tired, right? They're overworked and they become unsafe. And so we use technologies to try and ensure that they're not breaking federal rules about how much they can drive. That's fine, right? That's one approach. Another approach that I argue would be actually much more effective is just to change like some of the labor laws around trucking, right? To change the way we incentivize um, different types of work, right? Like structural changes to the organization of the industry. You know, that's not necessarily a data intensive solution. Um, but, you know, the it's not the one we've adopted, right? And so oftentimes I think we tend to use technology as kind of this like band-aid solution for problems that are inherently economic or social or cultural, but we tend to approach them as technology problems. And that often I think is the source of some of these unintended consequences for people. Hmm. In the case of the truck drivers, it strikes me that, you know, one thing that that illustrates is that the technology can be more accessible to the individual Groups, for example, uh, trucking companies or truck drivers, you know, as opposed to, you know, structural changes, the, some of the, the structural regulatory changes that you're describing require, you know, broad consensus across a large uh, influence group of, of people and organizations. Is, does that play a role in uh, some of those choices? Yeah. I mean, I think the accessibility of technology you know, as you mentioned, right, the increase, like the cheapness with which we can start to gather data and analyze data definitely lends itself to that being sort of an attractive solution for solving problems. And I think that can often be like a really positive thing. But as you say, right, like that often might keep us from actually addressing some of the structural problems that might be more effective at kind of getting at the root cause of a problem. So in trucking, right, like you can monitor a driver to find out if he's super tired, right? Like that's pretty easy to do. But what's much harder is like making sure he doesn't he isn't incentivized to get that tired in the first place. And you can see why that's politically more difficult, economically more difficult. But if you don't change that structure, then you're going to end up, you know, with almost this arms race, right, where people are still going to want to act the way they're incentivized to act. And you put technology in their place as sort of a roadblock. But, you know, you haven't actually addressed the root of the problem. Granted that, you know, there's certainly merit in addressing the structural issues is there something wrong with using technology as just another tool to help drive the kind of behavior that we want? Uh, or in other words, you know, what are some of the implications on the these drivers of the surveillance technology that's been put in place to monitor their behavior? Yeah. So, I mean, technology can certainly be like a really useful tool in the in the toolkit for enforcing um, behavior, you know, for incentivizing behaviors that we think are desirable or safer or better for society. Um, like it absolutely can have a role. Um, if we depend on it a lot, I think what we end up doing is making responsible the parties who often have like the least social and economic power, right? So essentially, like in trucking, for example, the way that these technologies end up functioning is to kind of punish drivers for doing like what they almost have no choice but to do, right? Like essentially, um, you know, in order to make ends meet, they've kind of violated the law for decades, like for generations. And everybody kind of knows that, right? That's like a, a known fact within the industry. And now they get kind of hit from both sides because they're still incentivized to do all those things. But now they're also punished for doing them, right? And they kind of bear the brunt um, of that. And so 
I think the consequence of sometimes using technology as kind of like the first course of action is that oftentimes it, it can have those impacts on maybe the person with the least structural power. Um, and that like merits some normative consideration, right? We have to ask ourselves, is that the way we want to address social problems is by kind of, you know, enforcing these rules kind of at the low end of of the spectrum. Um, and sometimes the answer might be yes, right? Or sometimes it may be that a problem is so pressing or, um, you know, so consequential that what, that we do want to make sure that people like have to follow the rules. But we also want to ask like, well, why are they motivated not to follow the rules in the first place? And might we do something to actually improve their quality of life or, you know, change kind of the circumstances such that they're not put in that, in that position? Right. It, it sounds like there may be an element of the situation that these drivers are in that we haven't fully explored. They're both required by someone not to work too much. There's some bounds placed on the number of hours, consecutive hours that they work without rest. But it sounds like there are also incentives on them working more, you know, beyond those limits. You've referred to incentives just to, you know, earn a living, put food on the table, all of that kind of thing. Are there also incentives on the part of their companies to to do that? And maybe, you know, let's explore this relationship between the, the technology and what the companies are asking these drivers to do. Because otherwise, it leaves open questions as to, you know, why the driver is not more responsible for their individual behavior in this situation. Yeah, I mean, like, so one parallel that you might that maybe is, you know, an easy one to wrap your head around is, is, you know, thinking about like drug laws or something, right? We can say like, oh, you know, we really like it's, it's against the law to use these drugs, right? It's against the law to do, you know, a variety of things. And we can enforce those rules, you know, and we often do, right, like using technology, but it doesn't change the fact that people use and sell drugs, right? And so better enforcement, more consistent enforcement, like may have a role in the way we choose to fight that problem. But it doesn't actually change the underlying structure of neighborhoods or the opportunities people have available to them, right? Like it's, it be, it's a piece of the puzzle that it's easy to rely on, but it's not the whole puzzle. And I think, you know, what you brought up about kind of like the network of interests, right? Like the, the companies that truckers work for, things like that. Yeah, that does like definitely play, play a role in the way we, you know, think about um, technology and rules. So like what ends up happening in trucking is that companies buy these systems that track drivers, right? Because the government actually now requires drivers to be um, to have their time tracked digitally. And then companies say like, well, we've bought this system. It actually now is like pretty cheap or free for us to like also run a bunch of other analytics on how drivers are doing. Um, meaning like how much fuel, what's their fuel economy, right? Like, uh, you know, are they saving enough money for the company? Are they driving efficiently? Are they not breaking hard? Things like that. And so they end up actually tracking a much wider swath of driver's behavior. And so it definitely changes the relationship to the company in that it means that um, drivers end up actually getting managed in this more granular, like real-time way, um, in this way that they weren't before. And and this is true across a lot of industries. Like a lot of low-wage workers end up being supervised really closely. It's interesting to me in trucking because this is a group of workers who have like sort of historically like gone out of that. The reason why they're truck drivers is because they didn't want this kind of oversight, right? Like they wanted to have a little bit of freedom and autonomy. And so it really becomes like a dignity issue for a lot of them, right? To feel as though, you know, their trucks are almost like their homes. They're in their trucks for weeks at a time, maybe. Um, and now to kind of like have this in, like this oversight, real-time oversight from the government or from their employers, like is quite, it's quite a, a thing for them. It's very different from like me being surveilled at work or you being surveilled at work. Like the nature of the workplace is just different. Mm -hmm. 
And so how does this manifest itself in terms of maybe relationship between the drivers and their companies? What have you seen in that regard? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, right? Like a lot of, um, a lot of the drivers that I've talked to have said things like, you know, like what it shows if you watch me really closely is that like, you don't trust me, right? You don't trust me to do the right thing. You don't trust me to be safe. You don't trust me to know my body well enough, right? Like many, many, many drivers compare this to like feeling like a criminal or feeling like a child, right? They see it as like this really kind of demeaning experience, um, to be tracked in real time. Um, you know, so that obviously like, it's pretty unpopular among, among most workers to, to feel like their, their work and livelihoods are being supervised so closely. Um, the kind of the, a sort of ironic, like coda to that is that, you know, they say like, well, you can't know my body. You can't know how tired I am. The next wave of technologies actually do sort of are able to infer those things more closely because a lot of them involve, um, like wearable technologies or cameras that are trained on a driver's eyelids to monitor fatigue, things like that. So they actually are quite a bit more invasive and can infer quite a bit more about whether a driver is tired. You know, that doesn't necessarily make truckers feel better. They don't say like, oh, well, now you like are inside my body or have have information about what's going on inside my body that doesn't affect their uh, privacy concerns. But, you know, they're kind of they kind of can't win one way or the other. How are the drivers reacting to this? Have they started like organizing against the trucking companies or it, it sounds like there's there's multiple issues. Well, there's clearly multiple issues here, but, you know, there is the you know, this technology being put in place to address uh, a specific issue around, you know, driver fatigue. Uh, but then there are kind of the downstream effects of this surveillance and uh, the data that's being collected about these drivers and how that's being used and how that is um, how that's being used specifically to manage these drivers. Where is the industry at with regards to addressing this tension that's that's starting to be created? Right. You're right that there's quite a bit of kind of uh, resistance or, you know, workers kind of viewing these technologies as, as unpopular, as invasive. And this is true across lots of different workplace surveillance contexts. But I think you feel it really strongly in trucking, um, just kind of based on the culture of the occupation. So, you know, in as in most low-wage workplaces, you know, workers don't often have the ultimate say. They might not have, you know, as much power as management to make decisions about whether these things are in place. Um, in trucking, you know, to some extent, the stuff is now federally mandated, like as of just a few months ago. So to some extent, there's not much that that employers can do. But there are some kind of movements where you see some companies trying to be responsive to this saying like, yeah, we'll treat you like an adult, or there are certain types of data that we won't collect, or that we won't give our dispatchers access to things like that. So you see that a bit. Um, but you know, it's not a it's not a industry with heavy unionization, which you might, you know, unions might be a party you would expect to push back on things like that. Um, so there aren't a lot of like really clear avenues for workers to you know resist the sort of data collection. It's just kind of becoming a new normal in the industry. And so that's a lot of what I'm interested in is kind of like, what does that transition end up looking like? Um, you know, how do you see truckers resist? So like one of the things that I've studied fairly extensively is trying to understand all the different ways that workers like try to thwart these technologies, like block data collection or falsify data collection, you know, otherwise try and kind of maintain a little bit of independence where the technology is sort of seen as taking that away from them. And what kinds of things have you seen there? A whole bunch of stuff. I mean, actually, like a whole bunch of really interesting stuff. So they, um, you know, kind of on one end of the spectrum, workers will just like outright break the thing, right? Like will destroy it. Um, sometimes, you know, in a kind of 
purposefully visible way as like sort of a form of protest. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, there are things that you can do that are much more subtle. Like you can, you know, kind of, I don't want to give all their secrets away, right? but you can kind of <laughs> do things to, you know, get extra time out of the systems if you know what the limitations of the system are, right? Like mm-hmm. you can eke out a little bit of extra driving time. And actually kind of interestingly, you know, you mentioned their relationships with companies. Companies actually sometimes kind of want them to do those things or will instruct them about how to cheat because companies kind of want it both ways, right? They want to monitor and enforce the rules, but they also like want their stuff moved at the speed of business. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes actually truckers actually get kind of told that, you know, you, you've got to violate the rules anyway, and here's how you do it. Um, mm-hmm. so there's a variety of different things they do, right. That, that are designed and some of them, you know, like actually don't even get them any more driving time, but they're kind of just about like preserving kind of their identity or their feeling of autonomy. So like my favorite example of this is, um, a trucker on YouTube actually, who shows other truckers how to kind of get behind, um, the system, the system, the system runs on like a Windows XP backbone, and he shows like here's how you can actually play solitaire on your monitor, right? Like, <laughs> which is great. Like, that's not a thing that you're supposed to be able to do, but he like manages to figure out how you do it. And I'm sure like that's no longer viable. Like, I'm sure some, you know that's probably no longer a feasible thing um, to be able to do with these systems. But the, right. he does it. You know, that's not making him any extra money, but that's like a way for him to kind of assert himself. Um, and I actually find that really interesting, right? That there's a lot of resistance that takes place that's much more about like maintaining identity and, and autonomy than it is necessarily about kind of some kind of instrumental, like making more money, something like that. Mm-hmm. Have, have these stories taught you anything about how the broader society, you know, will react to increased surveillance? Like, are there... You know, again, I guess I'm, you know, maybe I'm being overly, overly analytical in this conversation, but I'm, I'm looking again for the taxonomy of, you know, resistance <laughs> to surveillance. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the strategies that, that like truckers, truckers are the context that I know the best, right? Because I've spent the most time studying that industry, but you see some of these, you know, same techniques across other contexts of work or other just relational contexts, right? Where people try and falsify data streams or, you know, find some way to make the technology, make technology appear to, you know, show one account when in fact, you know, another account might be, might, it might be different. Um, so I think, you know, to some extent, like the, that you see that, I wouldn't say it's universal, but you see that across a lot of different contexts. I'm curious where you fall on, on kind of the surveillance spectrum personally. Like, do you, do you use ad blockers? Do you put tape over your computer camera? Like, <laughs> Yeah, so it's a good question, right? So like, um, I do use ad blockers. Where this comes up actually the most for me is, you know, a lot of my work also looks at families, looks at how people and families surveil one another, um, or in intimate relationships. And there, you know, one of the one of the reasons I got like the most interested in that context is because I would go to all these privacy and security conferences, and I like where people are, you know, working on like, say, national security issues, or consumer privacy, um, where, you know, these are like pretty staunch advocates of, of personal privacy. And then I would talk to them about like, oh, do you do something to like track your kids whereabouts? Or like, could you tell me where your spouse is right now? And a lot of them were like, oh, yeah, like, I definitely like read all my kids texts, you know, and that struck me as like a really interesting situation, right? That like a lot of a lot of the things that we're really resistant to, um, you know, when they come come at us from the government or from big multinational corporations, we're quite willing actually to kind of replicate in our own intimate lives. Um, so that's something I've gotten really interested in lately is trying to understand kind of how people, 
how people become surveillers themselves, right, in their own homes. Um, so I have a colleague, Luke Stark. Uh, we just wrote a paper uh, called The Surveillant Consumer that tries to look at how people actually become data collectors themselves in their own homes using a variety of consumer products like, you know, nanny cams and things like that, um, and trying to understand how that too ends up having um, this disproportionate effect on marginalized people. And when you say marginalized people, are you referring to specifically within the home relationship? Yeah, people. Yeah. So I use marginalized fairly broadly just to mean people who have, you know, relatively less power in a situation. So in families, certainly like I have a bunch of this work on domestic violence that, you know, we're, uh, you know, it's often, often, but not always um, women and children who suffer disproportionately from things like, you know, spyware. Um, but in other contexts too. So like I mentioned, like the nanny cam. So nannies in homes often tend to be women of color from, you know, with lower socioeconomic status, um, who end up being disproportionately surveilled in their work, um, you know, as a result of kind of this like consumer, like consumer led surveillance. Mm. Um, so it ends up being kind of like just another way in which communities of color, uh, women, you know, people who historically have less power end up kind of suffering the brunt of, of data collection. It's interesting, actually, right? So my colleague Jonas Lerman has this really lovely piece about how when we think about surveillance, marginalized people are kind of simultaneously overrepresented and underrepresented, right? So like we have all of these examples of how data sets are biased because, you know, they only include white men, right? Or they like don't include this kind of variety of of people or of images or of texts or whatever it is, and that that can lead to these really biased outcomes. But then we also have these problems where like there's overrepresentation in the data, right? Where like communities of color or poor people are historically like way over over surveilled, right? Much more data is collected about them for things like, you know, getting public benefits or in the course of, you know, the education system or criminal justice system. And so both of those things I think are true at once, right? You have like harms both from inclusion and exclusion. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting to me to kind of try and untangle what that looks like in day to day life. Mm -hmm. And you've alluded to, um, you know, specific examples of um, unintended consequences uh, in, in this in the application of surveillance, particularly within these uh, or as it impacts marginalized communities. Can you maybe talk through some specific examples there? There are a bunch of people who've um, done a lot of really excellent work in this arena. So for like, there's a bunch of work, for example, on um, risk assessment and criminal justice and in predictive policing that, um, that many of my colleagues have done in which, you know, they're, they demonstrate that predictive policing systems, which are trained on, um, you know, crime data that's already, that already overrepresents, you know, communities of color, marginalized communities tends to, you know, just exacerbate the overpolicing um, of those communities, right. For, for reasons that, you know, that you just create these feedback loops. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, you know, one example that, you know, that's one example in this particular context. Um, but we see it in, in lots of different contexts, right. Uh, Virginia Eubanks is a scholar, um, at SUNY Albany, who's written this really wonderful book called, called automating inequality that documents how local governments implement, um, various like allocation, algorithms to try and do things like apportion housing to homeless people um, or to direct public benefits programs, things like that. And how often, you know, because of various biases in the data or, you know, kind of the, um, the limitations that these systems are operating under, you know, it's not to say that they necessarily make the problems worse necessarily, but they may have impacts on communities that, that are 
um, not readily recognized, right? And and, be, and of course, be, they get a little bit more, um, the effects on communities can be a little bit more obscured, right? So like when, when communities adopt risk assessment algorithms or, you know, other systems, like the people who are in positions of power to make decisions may not, you know, have a great sense for, for the right questions to be asking um, or how these things will end up in, impacting their communities in the long run, um, which is not their fault, right? Like they're really difficult questions even for, um, you know, technical folks to untangle, but it definitely is a cause for concern as these as these tools kind of gain traction across a bunch of different domains. Yeah, it, it strikes me that part of what you're, maybe it's not something that you're saying. It's a, <laughs> a thread that I'm seeing in some of these stories is with regard to technology or surveillance in particular. You know, there's an element of power corrupts in here, meaning. You know, people will adopt surveillance to try to address specific point issues and surveillance tends to be, you know, almost this beast that consumes other, you know, adjacent freedoms or something like that. I'm trying to articulate this without being overly dramatic. But <laughs> no, it's easy to get dystopian really fast, <laughs> um, which I think is actually a problem. Like, I think we should be really critical, actually, of our own you know, like the critical community is, I think, a really important one to bring into these conversations. But we ought to also be critical of, you know, our, of our own techniques and our own assertions, right, that there is potentially a lot of good to be to, to come from some of these applications. But I think you're right, right? Like, so this sometimes gets called like surveillance creep, right? Mm -hmm. That like, once you started gathering data, you know, it gets easier to just add a little bit more data to the pile or to use the data for some other purpose. Um, because you've got it now, right? Like, this is, um, that there was a few years ago a big debate in kind of the privacy community about collection restrictions versus use restrictions, right? So the idea that you tell companies, for example, like these these are the types of data you can collect versus like once you have data, here's how you can use the data. Um, and the industry kind of was in favor generally of these use restrictions, right? Because as opposed to collection restrictions, because they you know allowed them to amass more data. Um, but, you know, then there was kind of some subsequent subsequent backlash where people say like, well, you know, like once you've collected it, like the game is kind of you've given the game away at that point. Right. Like because things get used for all kinds of different purposes or rules change. Right. Like we have, you know, you can put all these safeguards in place that you want, but, you know, you don't always know who's going to be in power. I mean, this has come up actually even recently with um, like New York City had this municipal ID program. OK, that they rolled out a couple of years ago. Um, for undocumented people, right, where they said, like, here's how you can get a municipal ID card that will allow you to do things like use the library, right, even though you don't have other documentation. And after doing, I mean, it was by all, you know, meant to be like a positive social program. And it's a program that actually, you know, sort of accidentally created real risks for these groups of people, because suddenly now there were concerns that, you know, actually those those records will be would actually be used to target those people, right, for um, things like Homeland Security enforcement, right. For ICE enforcement. Right. Right. So like, those are the types of risks, right? Like that's, that's an extreme one, but those are the types of things that, that we get concerned about, right. Is that, you know, terms of service change, privacy policies change, you know, stuff gets hacked. Like there are all kinds of different potential routes for data to be used in ways that we don't anticipate. You made an interesting point about, um, being critical in our critiques has how do we how do we think about that how do we you know how do we do that 
Yeah. So I think about this a lot, right? Because now that I'm in information science, so and the information science program I'm in is really closely tied to computer science. So I sit in the same building with a bunch of computer scientists all the time, um, which I really enjoy because I learn a lot from, you know, understanding their perspectives on these issues. I think the best thing that that we can do is like honestly to try and amass more technical understanding. Um, so I think like the worst examples of kind of critique of these systems come from people who don't necessarily, who have a thin understanding of how the systems actually work in practice. And that means both technically how they work and what their social effects are, right? So you can't really understand one without the other. Um, and then the other thing is, is I think actually about engagement. It sounds kind of, you know, touchy feely, but I think engagement with practitioners is the other like best way forward um, to kind of avoid painting like an, the other side as being the other side or as being like a straw man, um, you know, but to understand like the actual, you know, motivations and values behind these decisions, which really requires like actually talking to people. Um, so maybe this is just like a plug for social science, but I really believe that. Like, I really believe that, you know, having kind of more social science expertise at the table and having people, having social scientists then take seriously technical expertise and really try to understand it is, you know, the best we can do. Maybe this should this should be posed as a confirmation or question, but you made it sound like you find that people in computer science, in technology, are way less concerned about these issues than lay people. And that's almost my – I almost have the opposite uh Oh, yeah. Instinct. That's certainly not what I tried to – that wasn't – what I was hoping to portray. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely don't feel that way. I think like kind of the easy, so the easy critique that's sometimes made of algorithmic systems from the outside, mm -hmm. right. Can be that algorithms have this kind of depersonalizing effect, right. Or that, um, you know, the people designing them, like don't really understand, you know, what biases might be embedded in them and don't really care. Right. Like that I think is like, I'm obviously I'm creating a straw man by describing that as, as, this process of straw manning that some other people do. Right. <laughs> but I think that's like, that's like the worst form of criticism, right? Because it doesn't acknowledge what you just said, which is that like, oftentimes I think people are like quite deeply concerned about the systems they create and the inequities that those might exacerbate. Mm -hmm. um, so I do, I think it's exactly what you said. I think recognizing those intentions um, and actually working with people to try and build the best systems we can like that, that ought to be our goal, I think, as critical scholars, not necessarily to try and tear down, um, you know, efforts to try and, and improve those things. Uh, so you're you're working on a book on surveillance, particularly as it applies to the, the truckers that you've been working with. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like that book is in progress. But if you were to to kind of step back and, you know, or maybe project forward to the, the conclusion of this book. <laughs> um, you know, what are the key messages or takeaways for folks that are, I guess, in the case of listeners of this podcast, primarily technologists, primarily, you know, working to create, refine, perfect some of these technologies? Um, you know, what are the takeaways for them in terms of, you know, understanding and uh, dealing with the implications that they have on uh, different communities and particularly marginalized communities? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think there are probably two, like, so the first is something that I kind of alluded to earlier, which is, you know, technology is a really, is a useful tool for solving a lot of problems, but not every problem is best solved through technology. And I can understand why particularly technologists, right, would, would want to put their tools to use in a particular way. 
Um, but I think sometimes asking like, well, you know, holistically, is this the best approach or is this a, an approach that could be combined with other approaches, you know, or different forms of expertise, you know, how will we evaluate what the real effects of these tools are on communities? Like that seems super essential to me. Um, and then the other piece of it, I think is, you know, like, like in the case of these truckers, for example, right? Like there's concern recently about, um, like the potential for massive unemployment or, or among truck drivers based on the uh, development of autonomous vehicles. Now, I think that that's an overstated concern, but like one, I mean, we would be telling sort of a simple and boring story if we focused only on the numbers, right? If we focused only on something like job loss, I think a more important um, and nuanced take on it would be to actually understand kind of like the dignity and quality of life that results when we put some of these systems in place. Mm -hmm. um, right. Which might not be something you can measure in, in numbers, right. M might not be something that you can look at in terms of dollars or, you know, jobs lost or something like that. But actually like that's, that ends up being like what it is to live with these systems, right. To live with data being collected about you or to live with, um, automated decisions being rendered about you. And for that, I think it really takes like getting into the community, talking to the people who are affected on the front lines. Um, like, I just can't see that there's any replacement for trying to understand problems at that level. Mm -hmm. and, and just to be concrete about uh, this, in the case of the truck drivers that will undoubtedly be impacted by self-driving uh, trucks, how do you see that uh, impacting them, their dignity, their uh, the way they work and the way they feel about their work? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So because of kind of the nature of, so the nature of work, right, is that work is really complicated, right? And so to say like, oh, well, now we have self-driving trucks, so we don't need human truckers anymore is to like really kind of oversimplify what really anybody's job looks like, right? So I mm -hmm. think we will, and there are a lot of things that self-driving trucks are like very, very far from being able to accomplish um, technically, right? So what I think that means and what I, a lot, you know, a lot of people think that means is that, you know, it's not that we have like robots that replace people and then we're done. It's that like very slowly robots change, you know, people end up working with automated systems. Right. And so it's like the working with that becomes interesting and important. Um, and there are ways that we can work with machines that, you know, augment both where everybody gets to kind of use their strengths. Right. And it becomes like a really kind of collaborative, um, you know, supportive synergistic relationship. And then there are ways where it doesn't appear that way, right? Where like the machine becomes kind of like the supervisor of you, right? Or the machine kind of, um, you know, in the case of truckers, right? Like actually like has a bunch of insight into your body, right? Or is, is seen as sort of intrusive. So like I mentioned, you know, truckers having these cameras trained on their eyelids, you know, or there are all these systems that will like jolt them or flash lights in their eyes or, um, you know, text their partners, like all these different things if they get tired, and that, you know, you can imagine why that like changes kind of the dignity and the nature of the job, right? Like being kind of forced to sort of hybridize with these systems is really different than kind of the kind of mutually supportive environment that we might otherwise create. And so it all becomes about the details, right? It all becomes about kind of like how we roll these things out, you know, whose incentives we acknowledge. Um, and I think there's a lot of room to do it well and in ways that actually like make work better for people. But it takes like really careful thought, I think, when we when we try to do that. Again, maybe acknowledging my inclination to kind of framework eyes and analyze this. <laughs> yeah, you love you love a framework. <laughs> I, like I'm thinking about like are, is has anyone started working on like the you know principles of these this hybridization hybrid job roles? What does that mean, and 
how can we think about that consistently uh, across different types of jobs? Or does that even, do you think that even makes sense? Like, are, are there things that apply equally to the, to the truckers and people working in office environments and people working in industrial environments as these jobs are getting increasingly hybridized? Or do you think that they're, they're all separate? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think there are probably consistent answers, but I think there are probably consistent questions to ask across those different contexts, right? So understanding things like an occupational culture, the occupational culture of trucking is very different from the occupational culture of, say, like office work, right? Mm -hmm. But that, but asking questions about the culture and the values and the traditions of an occupation seems like indispensable to me, right? Understanding like you don't just drop technology in and run away, but like understanding, you know, who are these people? Why are they here? Like what is important to them, which is both like, you know, monetary, right? Like what, what, you know, how, you know, how do they make their money and like, how is this going to affect how they make their money? But also these kind of questions around identity and tradition and culture, things like that. Um, you know, questions about autonomy, I think are probably important to ask across contexts. Like we pretty much know, right. That people like having autonomy in their work, like almost, you know, you know, across lots of different occupations, right? Like people don't like having things um, directed so much so that they feel like they're part of a machine. And so when we build machine human systems, like making sure that people have, you know, some of that decisional capability feels really important, right? And and again, like that'll look different. Like if you're looking at doctors working with robots to do surgery versus a truck driver, you know, with like kind of with an autonomous supervisor in the truck, but the values are the same, right? Uh, well, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this. It's been a really interesting conversation. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.